Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. So we've talked already about Lee Anderson's comments about the London mayor turning the spotlight on the Conservatives and their record on diversity. That's still one of the big stories in Westminster today. There is one interview that we will have to start with, which is the illegal immigration minister, Michael Tomlinson, speaking to LBC's Nick Ferrari about this. Ferrari had been asking about the response to Lee Anderson's words. Let's take a listen. What he said was wrong. As a result of what he said, the whip was removed from him. That was robust action. No, that was why robust was it action wrong? That was That's taken. what I'm trying to get at. Um, it was wrong, Nick, because of what he said, and robust no, we're action going was taken it, so as a result. Well it was t- it was Let's try this a different way. Was it Islamophobic? What he said was wrong, and robust what? action was taken, no. and the whip was removed within 24 but, hours. Minister, was it Islamophobic? And uh, Nick, it was wrong. Minister, I'm going to, and I, I'm never, I'm normally a very polite man, I'm actually going to effectively put the fact, I'll ask you now, for the third time, I've asked you six times why it was necessary, for the third time, Was it Islamophobic? Uh, Nick, it was wrong. I'll have to curtail the interview there. I'm grateful for your time, but enough already. Michael Tomlinson is the Minister of State for Illegal Migration, unable to answer a question. Oof, LBC's Nick Ferrari not taking any prisoners in that conversation. But this is a perfect example of how the Tories are tying themselves in knots over this. And it makes you wonder, does it really matter to voters? And it makes you wonder how they can criticise Keir Starmer on anti-Semitism when the Labour Party gets its words in a twist over the flip side of this issue. Look, it's an example of how difficult things are at this point in the electoral cycle where nobody wants to alienate anyone else, particularly we know that Lee Anderson does have supporters. He's also got a very big platform, so he could be a very difficult person if you were to upset him too much. But this becomes you know, a much bigger story than perhaps it otherwise would because of people like the minister that we heard there trying to walk this line, which seems a little bit nonsensical, frankly. Yeah, and speaking of Tory feuds, the Business and Trade Secretary, Kemi Badenoch, has an arch nemesis, the former chairman of the post office, Henry Staunton. They've been arguing over who bears the blame for not compensating victims of the post office scandal fast enough. He's going to be giving evidence to MPs later. So the distractions from what messaging the Tories need to get back to, which is their plans for the economy, just continue. Yeah, look, and as we'll get on to a little bit later as well, on the countdown to a budget when the the government should be hoping to get everyone very excited about measures that could be announced just next week as well. So we wanted to talk about this political narrative as it's playing out. Let's bring in the founding director of JL Partners, Tom Lubbock, for more on this. Tom, good to have you with us on the show. So we've got rows over who said what at the post office. We've got rows over comments that Lee Anderson made and whether or not members of the Conservative Party are willing to admit that they were Islamophobic. Are these the sort of issues that voters care about? Good to speak to you, Stephen. Um, I mean, in one sense they are, but not not in a positive way. So 
we obviously speak to the public in focus groups and in through through the medium of opinion polls. And one thing you hear over and over again is that um, people dislike the chaos and the confusion and the uncertainty that the last few years have brought. Now, obviously, that stem that the impression that the public have got stems from several things, including the change of prime ministers, but. It, it kind of doesn't matter what the cause of it is. If it's the speaker um, having a row with the SNP, if it's um, a, a row about Lee Anderson's comments, if it's Labour in anti-Semitism um, problems, then it, the public's, a large portion of the public just see uncertainty, confusion and um, disarray. And I, I think they don't like it. And unfortunately for the government, they tend to blame the government. And so it kind of matters in that sense. But clearly what your, what your question is getting at is, you know, are the more important issues? And the short answer is yes. And what are they apart from people wanting stability? What do voters look at to make up their minds? Yeah, a great question. I mean, when you're thinking about the election that's coming up in um, in a few months' time, there's a kind of trifecta that is a good starting point to think about. That's the economy and cost of living top. It's health and the NHS second, and it's immigration and asylum third. And they, those three issues are mixed differently for different groups of voters. But it's those three issues that are the core of what people will be thinking about when they vote in this election and what the party should be thinking about when they make their offers to voters. So do controversies like those that we've been talking about serve to disengage people from politics? Are people more likely to not vote if these are the sort of subjects that seem to be dominating in the political world? I mean, in as much as, I mean, I I have to say the scale of these latest um, Rouse, I imagine very few of the public have actually noticed, and, and certainly not in a con- even if they've noticed, they won't have noticed in a kind of concrete enough way to be able to recount any of the specific details of the story. And you know, in some sense, who can blame? Who can blame? You know, an average member of the public who's got so many better things to do than worry about like rows in Westminster. But I, so I don't think they'll have any um, impact in that sense. But it's just really noticeable in the last few weeks that the conservative message has not been getting out there. I've hardly heard anyone say back to square one or Keir Starmer doesn't have a plan. We have a plan. Um, and so from that point of view, it's an opportunity cost for the conservatives in that they're not getting their message out there. And likewise for Labour as well. They've got work to do to convince the public of Keir Starmer and exactly what they stand for. And so in that sense, there's a real cost um, in terms of the two parties, but I, I don't think it's going to make any difference to turn out or, um, or whether people vote. Well, even if Tory MPs aren't on message, it seems the message is right, at least. Sunak's top priorities are exactly what you said voters care about, the economy, the NHS, immigration. When all of this goes wrong, is it directly to Labour's gain? I think you'd have to say that if, if 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 you go to a standstill position, if we just fought the election, um, you know, in, in a few months' time and nothing happened between now and then other than um, Westminster rows, that would be greatly to Labour's advantage. But I think the interesting thing to, that I can add 
um, to, the, to the commentary on this is that Labour do still have a lot of work to do. I think that lack of oxygen is, is a cost to them too, that lack of, kind of oxygen of getting their message out there. And, you know, they people are yet to be thoroughly convinced on Keir Starmer. They don't know what he stands for. And I think, you know, the standstill position, it's looking, um, is does look very positive for Labour. But I think they will want to improve their position by convincing voters of what Keir Starmer stands for and of what the Labour Party would do if they got into power. And they need to do that between now and the election and any week where these rows are taking airtime and oxygen from that um, is, is a bad thing from the Labour point of view as well. It's probably worse for the government, but bad for Labour too. What's the, the ideal timeline then for Labour to start showing its hand? It's a frequent criticism that we've heard, uh, not only um, weekly in Prime Minister's Questions, but elsewhere as well from other groups, that there isn't a lot of detail on Labour's policy proposals. How far out from an election does the party need to make its stance clear? I mean, that's about as polite a way as I've ever heard it put, the, the, the lacking in detail, I mean... Uh, Thank you. I'm known for my manners, if nothing else. Yeah, there's a substantive point that obviously, you know, when faced with choices between uh, more radical policies and um, uh, more small C conservative approaches, Labour have always, always chosen to ditch the radicalism and go for the small C conservatism since Keir Starmer became leader. so, I mean, the, the, there's certainly a substantive point to it. When do they? When should they start telling the public? Well, I mean, I can understand it's keeping your powder dry, but I think there was an opportunity um, two years ago for Starmer to, to really set his stall out and to convince voters. Having not done that and having got this reputation for flip-flopping and for um standing for very little i guess they're waiting till right in the last moment for the campaign to kind of change everything i think the 2017 election shows that that there's there's some wisdom behind that but then there's also the risk that you leave it too late and that you don't actually um, get your message through in time just very briefly tom later in the show we're going to be asking we're going to discuss calls for an increase in defense spending how much of a priority is that for voters yeah, I, I'd say foreign relations and defence isn't really one of those issues that the public tend to vote on um, for the most part when it comes to general elections. Now, clearly, um, this time around, we've got the um, war that is going on um, between Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza. And so clearly that will be very salient for a small group of voters. Um, but... There is a kind of overarching sense of these party brands and, you know, people want parties that keep the country secure and there's a level at which that um, would become salient. And I think increasing defence spending is a, is a positive with voters. It's just not going to be one of those like nuts and bolts issues that the election is fought on. But okay. definitely there's room there for both, both parties to kind of convince voters that um, they are the party of defence and security. Okay, Tom Lubbock, founding director of JL Partners. Thanks so much for joining us on the programme. 
The head of the manufacturing lobby group Make UK has been laying out his vision for the economy ahead of next week's budget. It includes changing the rules on capital spending, scrapping annual budgets and potentially splitting up the Treasury into separate finance and economy ministers. Joining us now to discuss these ideas is Make UK's Chief Operating Officer, Ben Fletcher. Ben, great to have you with us. These are very big ideas when it comes to management of the economy. What's the idea here? I think they are very big, idea, big ideas, but I think this is what we need at this stage uh, in the development of industry and as the wider economy seeks growth. Um, we've actually had a fantastic year in manufacturing. Uh, we are still one of the 10 biggest manufacturing nations on earth. And in the last 12 months, we've actually overtaken France to move from ninth to eighth in the global league table. So British manufacturing is strong, it's healthy, uh, and it's a, it's a sector that is, uh, that is in, uh, in a position where it can start to grow. What we're looking for, I think, is a recognition from government that we're a huge part of the economy, that there is real potential there. And we are making some fairly radical uh, requests of government and indeed in what's likely to be an election year, the opposition parties as well. Because what we're saying is there's a kind of hidden gem here within the economy. It could deliver you some really substantial growth. Uh, it would support uh, a huge number of new businesses and growing businesses. It would lead to growth in other ancillary and related sectors like logistics and, and so on. But what we do need, I think, is a bold vision for manufacturing and a policy agenda that, that reflects that, responds to that and really seizes the opportunity that we're presented with today. So one of the things that you want, Ben, is for the government to commit to an increase in defence spending. That's the opposite of the global mood, isn't it? If Donald Trump wins the White House, you'll have less money flowing to Ukraine than now. I think we're very focused on a couple of things and and we're very conscious of the issues and the debate that's happening in the US in in their election uh, window as well. Uh, I think uh, over half the world goes to the polls this year and, and the US election will be incredibly important and agenda setting there. I think for the UK, uh, what we're saying uh, is really important. The period of global instability at the moment really feels unmatched. I'm I'm in my early 50s. I can't remember a period like this before. Uh, And I think Britain is very much one of the major NATO powers. I think we face serious risks uh, as a result of, of Russian expansionist policies and European and global instability. Uh, And in some respects, even if the American path is one of more isolationism, it's going to put an even bigger burden on the European powers to be ready to deal with some of what might be some pretty shocking and and worrying risks and threats over the next few years. And I think our position is, if we're going to do that, we need a plan for that. We need to be ready for that because you can't be caught cold in terms of having the ability to build munitions. You can't suddenly turn that capability on overnight. And I think from a policy perspective and an industrial preparation perspective, we face a very difficult and uncertain future. We want Britain to be ready for that. And what we're saying on behalf of our members in the security and defence sector is that you need to step up your position if we want to be able to deal with what might be a very serious set of risks and issues over the coming years. And if America does pull back, that's going to put even more responsibility on the big European countries to be ready to, to do their bit. Is this essentially about just wanting more money from the government? I mean, if you're looking for more defence spending, that's one way of funnelling money into the sector that you represent. But the UK is never really going to be able to compete with spending from the likes of the US. Um, It isn't just about money. I think what our central ask is for quite some time now and today really distills this and brings it together uh, on the back of our big national conference 
what we're saying is that we need a plan. Uh, and unlike most of our big competitor nations around the world, Britain doesn't have an industrial strategy and it doesn't really have a clear plan. Government expenditure is always important. Uh, and uh, when we think about defence, uh, very importantly for our sector, big infrastructure projects as well, um, government expenditure is vitally important uh, for triggering private sector investment. But the really big message of today is that if we're going to grow, if we're going to deal with the very threatening landscape that we face, if we're going to continue to be uh, a major manufacturing power, the thing that we're going to need from the government and the message that we're sending to the opposition parties is very consistent. We really need a plan because the nations that we're competing with do have much clearer plans. That's very important for triggering inward investment. It's really important at the moment for triggering confidence. And when we think about both defence and infrastructure, we think about the challenge of net zero and moving our car industry uh, in a massively different direction. We're going to need to have really clear skills policies. We're going to need a massive investment in people leaving school and college with the right kind of skills and the right kind of qualifications. So whatever uh, set of issues we look at, whether it be defence, whether it be challenging net zero, whether we think about some of the big challenges of automation and digitisation, which are going to be uh, absolute game changers in, in British manufacturing, what we need are a series of decisions by government that can enable us to have the workforce of the future to allow the current workforce to transform, but really importantly, set a very clear message to the big private sector businesses that they can have the confidence to invest. Because if we get government spending right, the thing that will absolutely dwarf that is private sector investment, and we need the right landscape for that. Ben, I just want to ask you about this proposal to split the Treasury in two, because the former chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, made a similar proposal. He'd have an economic ministry run by a US-style council of economic advisers. Is that what you'd do? Because there will be people who'd say that's undemocratic. Certainly from our perspective, we think it's a very interesting idea We've spoken to Andy, we've launched our own industrial strategy, which uh, has, has had at its heart the idea of a council of, uh, of economic advisors. We certainly don't think that it's in any way anti-democratic. Uh, I think that one of the reasons why we're making this request and, and, and asked today is that we want it to be a big part of the election debate. We want people to have the chance to vote on those kind of principles and, uh, and ambitions. We want that to be a really transparent part of what's a, an incredibly important year for, for British democracy. I think one of the, the, the important things that we've learnt and, and I think many people have seen is that as a country we're lagging behind in productivity, we're lagging behind in private sector investment and we are not maintaining the sort of grip uh, of maintaining and growing our big national infrastructure. Do you see the Labour Party as being more ambitious than the Conservatives in this area? How would you compare the two's approach to this? I think what we've seen really in the last six to nine months is uh, both parties beginning to grasp this nettle. Um, I think with the autumn statement, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, made some very important decisions around things like full expensive, full expensing on capital investment um, uh, and a interesting and important ability to start to look at how we might transform the apprenticeship levy. The Labour Party have been very clear about their ambitions to have an industrial strategy and to put a, a, a committee of, of industrial advisors seems to be one of the things they're very keen on as well. So I think the game has started to change in the last six to nine months. Both parties, I think, realise the importance of this issue and very, very uh, welcome from our perspective 
both parties seem to be very keen to listen to the voice of industry a lot more, whether that's through a structured process of a committee or otherwise. We would like to see both parties go further. Uh, and I think the really important thing is that both parties are very clearly listening, realise the importance and significance of this issue and really want to understand where industry is. Ben, it sounds like we've got a budget and an election on the horizon. You're being very kind to both of the parties. Who's the party of business at this point and who's got much further to go? Uh, I think that both parties are are listening again. And I think that's really important. I'm, I'm not going to, uh, as you probably wouldn't expect, I'm not going to go out and pick a winner here. <laughs> um, what I would say is that our ambition for the next six months is that every election will quite rightly talk about the health service. Every other election will quite rightly talk about border issues and, uh, and crime issues and uh, all of the things that the public care about. What I think we're going to have for the first time in many years is an election where people are talking about industry and manufacturing and how we bring jobs and growth back to parts of the country that haven't been as successful as others in the last few years. And I think what we want to make sure is that understanding that in those parts of the country, manufacturing is alive and kicking. It's often the biggest industrial sector. It's often the biggest employer. And what we can't do is continue to have elections where this issue is marginalised, not taken seriously and isn't a part of the debate. And I think the really refreshing position is that both parties really seem to understand that at the moment. Both parties are here represented at very senior levels at our conference today. And what they want to know is what industry needs from uh, the next government, what industry will need to grow over the next few years. And our job is to make sure that they listen and really importantly, post-election, uh, honour those promises. Uh, and that's the commitment we're making that we them to account on that. OK, Ben Fletcher, Chief Operating Officer at Make UK. Thanks very much for joining us. So that's some of what the manufacturing industry wants from the Chancellor. But just over a week out from the budget, as ever, everybody wants a piece of his headroom and the newspapers are full of speculation about what that will be. If you added it all together, the bond market would definitely be back in a Liz Trust situation. So to pass what's actually likely and what's just kite flying, we've hauled in our UK government editor, Stuart Biggs. Stuart, help us separate fact from fiction. Jeremy Hunt says he wants smart tax cuts. Is that a distinction from the non-smart tax cuts in the mini budget, or what does it all mean? Well, there's a there's a, a few competing narratives in terms of what uh, uh, Chancellor will produce next week. So, on the one hand, you've got to consider all the uh, Conservative MPs, especially on the sort of right fringe of the party. So, you mentioned um, you know the likes of of Truss and others, uh, sort of pushing for this inc- uh, a f- sort of full-throated tax cuts, as it were. So, to inc- so you're talking income tax or national insurance. and Tax cuts keep- that scream at you. Yes. Uh, tax cuts that you can put on an election campaign leaflet. You know, So uh, think sort of we keep hearing rumours that the ambition is 2p off, off income tax, and that would be the gold standard. Like if they can achieve that, they're all happy. And does that but- look likely? But it's it's difficult. The the what we with the counter argument we hear is that there isn't going to be the headroom for that level of ambition. Mm. But nevertheless, um, you know that's that's the goal on this side of the party. On the other side, you've got this sort of idea about smart taxes, so less ambitious, but more sort of focused on the other part, the sort of more sober part of the party that says, okay, we need to have tax cuts that. Don't make people feel like this is a bribe, that it's a giveaway, that it's something the country can't afford. It's focused on 
promoting growth, encouraging people back into work, that kind of approach. And that's the side that Hunt talks about when he speaks to the what, what we call the one nationers, so the more centrist part of the party. So you've got these two slightly conflicting narratives. Where they agree is that having raised taxes to such a high threshold over this period, um, that, that the Conservatives can't go into an election without having sort of eased the burden a little bit. They, they, need, they feel as though they need that to be able to campaign effectively. If I can suggest a middle road here, I was speaking to Callum Pickering, an economist at Berenberg, about an income tax cut. He said, if you put the headroom issue aside on an inflation perspective, it's actually a more effective way of stimulating demand in the economy when we're in technical recession than interest rates falling, because they just benefit people who have mortgages effectively, whereas an income tax cut, the effect is distributed more evenly. That's surely an argument that Jeremy Hunt could make. That That's an argument that he would likely to make, but it's also, you know, the, at, at the heart of this is, is you've, he's got to stand up on, on Wednesday and find a way of making people feel as though he's doing the right thing for the economy, but he's also doing the right right thing for sort of electoral politics and they're not necessarily the same thing and I think the stakes are heightened months out from election because voters become increasingly more in tune to the idea that something's a bribe versus something's a good policy and so and so you know Hunt knows this obviously he's he's you know traditionally from the sort of more uh, sober centrist portion of the party but he also knows that there's a very strong call out from the right to, for, for ag- aggressive measures. Okay, Stuart Biggs, our UK government editor, thank you very much for talking us through some of the thoughts around what might come up in next week's budget. Our latest reporting looking at the possibility of a tax on vapes as part of the budget. So that's one of the stories we'll be keeping an eye on. That's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.